Hello and welcome to Transforming Education, a podcast brought to you by VO. In this episode, I'm lucky enough to be speaking to Sharath Jeevan, the author of Intrinsic, a manifesto to reignite our inner drive. I speak with Sharath about intrinsic motivation, a little bit about tennis, and even what he would do if he was the new education secretary in the cabinet reshuffle. Hope you enjoy. Hi, Sharath. How are you doing? Good. It's so nice to be uh, on the show with you. So, real pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. Obviously, you're here today to talk with us a little bit about intrinsic motivation. And that feeds nicely to this book that you've just released, Intrinsic, uh, which I must say is quite a handsome looking book. <laughs> I was uh, reading it on the train the other day and um, I could tell people were kind of just trying to suss out what I was reading, whether because the book looked nice or because I was not glued to my smartphone, I'm not sure. But I've really enjoyed the book and there's a lot of content in there, which I think will be useful to our listeners in terms of education. Uh, and I think before we delve into the book, I would love to chat to you a little bit about your background with, with STIR education and intrinsic labs um, and the Education Commission and kind of what, what led you to, on the path towards writing this uh, manifesto on intrinsic motivation. Yeah, thanks, Ned. And I, I thought you were going to say I'm a handsome-looking guy. I thought this, so the, <laughs> I'm just just teasing you as well. So the book is is, is even better as well. So just just there. No, it was so so nice. I was just saying, um, you know, when you're writing, you have you know two and a half years of a, a sort of gestation period. It's so nice to see that work come out in the world. I'm so glad you enjoyed it, and I hope it will inspire others as well. Um, yeah. So I, for me, it was a real journey. You had. A, I, I'm not a psychologist by background. Motivation felt very fluffy, very fuzzy. Uh, certainly, I didn't when I was, you know, eight or ten or twelve or even eighteen or twenty-one. I, I never thought I would sort of become a motivation expert. But what happened is, I, I was deeply driven by um, a passion for education. I'm the son of immigrant parents to the UK. Uh, both were doctors. They came, you know, classic sort of immigrant story. Um, you know, the, the, the controls in India meant they, they came literally without fifty pounds in their in their wallet, and the only thing they had was their was their sort of human capital, their education that allowed them to have a, um, you know, a new life and build a new future in a new country. And that value of education was always really, really strongly um, emphasized through my childhood and uh, you know, the, the value of books, actually. And I, I, I grew up for part of in the UK, for sure, but go uh, uh, often to India, but also spend, I spent seven years in Saudi Arabia. My parents worked in the NHS and I took about that in the book. But um, yeah, books are really precious. I remember there was a British um, library and they were literally like gold dust. You could not, it was so difficult to get hold of them. That that sense of kind of education and books being really an integral and intrinsic part of who we are has, has always been there. And, you know, like many, I've been so encouraged to see governments around the world acknowledge the value of education. So um, I worked in the UK for five years, uh, founding an organization, helping our most challenging inner city schools in, in, in this country mm-hmm. have better leadership in the schools. But the last decade um, has been focused in countries like India, where I was born, also places like Uganda and East Africa, Indonesia and Southeast Asia. And what really became apparent to me very early on in that, that journey was that governments had built, you know, had invested huge amounts of money into education, which was absolutely great, absolutely essential. India built a million free government schools that were free to access for all children. They also provided a midday meal to, to, to almost all kids, which is, again, incredible achievement, 240 million kids in the school system, four times the size of the, the UK alone. 
So that was incredible. But all of this effort and investment and, 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 and sort of dedication was not going to a good place because teachers at the court didn't feel motivated by their jobs. And it was a crazy irony because, you know, the idea of a guru in Indian culture was thousands of you know, years old, but somehow there's in this big rush to build schools that hired many teachers and that, that cultural norm, that, that sense of a vocation had been lost. It, it, it basically become a civil service job. Yeah. And I spent 10 of the hardest years of my life trying to figure out how to crack that problem and help teachers reignite that motivation in themselves not through money, actually, they were quite paid pretty well, actually, by, by, by local standards, but by trying to look at deeper drivers in that. And that um, what I found, there was a lot of research out there, about 30 years of it, but how to apply this stuff in real life, um, there was almost no uh, no guides. It was a bit like, you know, what John Major talked about, the University of Life. That was my my university over those 10 years trying to figure this out. And, and so I thought there was a real need to write a, a book to try to bring some of the practical experience together, not just about education, but also in our work, our parenting, our relationships, our citizenship, but also I now advise organizations around the world on questions of motivation to help them practically apply these strategies that we all hopefully live more motivating lives of overall. Yeah, and I, I love what you've done with the book from a pragmatist point of view, in that it's not just a book on education. There are chapters and elements within the book which focus on the education system in India and the work that you've done there. Like you said, it also focuses on broader things like relationships, parenting, politics. It's a really interesting um, deep dive into not just how we can be better educators, but how we can be better people or our best selves through through the, the, the tool of intrinsic motivation. And in the book, you talk about these three main keys that, that, that drive that change. And they're, they're themes that run throughout the book and they're, they're purpose, autonomy, and mastery. Could you tell us a little bit more about those keys and how they um, how they help us to become our best selves? Yeah, thanks, Neil. And, and you know that um, what you said about that these things being interlinked is so important because if you just take that, that lens of, um, you know, we're a teacher, for example, we are a teacher, but also, you know, we might be a spouse or a girlfriend, a boyfriend, might be a parent. We're all definitely citizens and we all need our talent to be nurtured in different ways. I think we have to look at motivation um, in a holistic way. What we're finding is if you're not motivated at work, it can spill over into how you are as a spouse, for example, or, or vice versa. We've got to look at this in a holistic way. And as you said, the keys for each of those different doors is the same, actually. It's these ideas of purpose, autonomy and mastery. What it's not, I think it's maybe worth stressing this to begin with, it's not the things we normally think about in terms of motivation. So in a job, it's actually not our salary that really makes a difference. It is important up to a point, we all want to be paid fairly and put bread on the table, but beyond a point, it's amazing how those, those um, effects uh, um, sort of tend to diminish over time. Mm. Um, at the same time, you know, in a relationship for, or parenting approach, for example, it's not really the grades that matter for our kids. That's not big. It has sometimes become the, the way we think about parenting. But you know, if, if, we, if we go deeper and look at these intrinsic drivers, these things are internal to ourselves. There's that core insight that really lasting motivation comes from within. And I think of it a bit like you know driving a car. And I talk about this in the book that you can drive a car on diesel, which many Indian cars that are run on. You know, if anyone, if you've ever been to a city in India or many parts of the world, it's it's not a very pleasant ride. You 
you get there, you get from A to B, but you're often choking with the fumes along the way. And intrinsic motivation is like driving that electric car where it's genuinely pleasurable, smooth, exciting. You can actually feel the road underneath your feet. Um, and you're doing something not because something else is promised at the end, but because it's inherently or intrinsically satisfying, rewarding, fulfilling. And so it's a bit like that sort of good cholesterol, bad cholesterol comparison. You know, both will, you know, um, both are there, but the more we can live our lives by intrinsic principles, uh, the better. And I think about purpose with that car example being you know, the, like the, the destination we put into that GPS, you know, that sense of how what we do helps and serves others. If we're a teacher, it's obviously usually about how we help and serve other, um, other young people that, we, that we, we teach or lead, but also the other adults around them. Autonomy is, is feeling like we are as a professional in charge of our lives and, and sort of able to direct it and drive the wheel in the way we feel most fit. And mastery is about becoming the best versions of ourselves we can be. We know that teaching is a very um, complex profession. We'll talk about that a bit more. But the mastery of things, not just as a, in terms of pedagogy or curriculum, but actually in terms of how we build relationships with children and the role modeling we do as professionals become really important. So, yeah, those, those three acronyms, well, PAM, if you like, an easy one, purpose, autonomy, mastery, they are, as you said, the key to unlocking our inner virtuation. I think... Um, teaching is quite a natural fit for those keys. So if you're thinking of the first one, purpose, it's quite a natural profession to have a clear purpose with. I like in the book how you use some examples about reframing. So perhaps in some professions which you wouldn't automatically think there's a clear purpose, like perhaps being a cleaner. I think you used an analogy in the book about a cleaner who worked for NASA and when they asked him what he did for a living, he said he helped people get to the moon. So even in those kind of professions where it's not as natural in terms of uh, 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 an assumption that they're going to be helping other people in a, in a really meaningful way, you can still find a clear purpose in those roles. But with teaching, I think there's already that, that kind of clear understanding amongst most teachers that there is a, a sense of purpose to, to the job. But the reality is... You know, I think it's about 50% of new teachers leave the profession within five years. It's a, it's a challenging career to work in. So how do you think we can help teachers to be retained a little bit more effectively um, within, within the profession using the ideas of intrinsic motivation? Yes, as you said, Ed, exactly. You know, it's such an intrinsically purposeful profession. I mean, teaching is at its core, but how we help and serve others. I mean, it's hard to think of many... Other professions, obviously, med um, doctors, nurses, we're in that, social workers, we're all in that very, very similar camp. It's, it's so direct, right? But um, what has unfortunately happened, I think, is that we have set up our education systems in a way that not only sort of undermines that purpose, but actually, I would argue, almost works against it. Mm. I think what has happened is that we have forgotten our, our mental models of what motivate us have been driven by sort of management theory. Um mm. And that management theory is really outdated and just com nowadays completely wrong. And it sees us, you know, as sort of these selfish um, economic beings whose only job is to maximize our own interests. And we all, all of us have an element of that. I think we can all see that in a bit of ourselves, but there's also a large part of us that's much more noble, that's kind, that's caring, that generally wants to help and serve others in a way that we talked about purpose. Um, I think the problem is if you take that approach that, you know, Teachers are lazy. Teachers are, you know, all of these kinds of, you know, um, it's lazy thinking. I think 
this kind of nonsense. What happens is we design systems where it's all driven by accountability and fear mm-hmm. and compliance, I would argue as well. Yeah. And that fear and compliance culture is really, it's cancerous. And I think it's really taken root. It's probably a stage three, stage four now in, in the, in the, uh, in the English education system, take just one example. And I was shocked talking to the book, how many head teachers I talked to who no longer saw their purpose as serving their communities, but really uh, serving Ofsted, making sure they got through an inspection okay, or mm-hmm. making sure they look good on the league tables of their you know, local area. And it's completely subverted that sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. So I think what I'm really calling for in the book and, and the work I do practically is to Re- rekindle, reignite that um, that idea of, of, of our, our work helping and serving others and putting it at the forefront of teaching. And it doesn't mean we, we can't ignore the Ofsteds or the league tables, that's part of life as well. But it's saying, yeah, I understand. It's, it's like a hygiene factor. We know that we've got to clear that or jump that hoop, but that's not why we're, why we're really here. And I think the pandemic hopefully has awoken in many people that sense that I've talked to you know, teachers who have been literally, you know, going house to house to deliver food parcels during some of the lockdowns because, you know, involvement with one of the communities there where a few people could help in that way. I think it has reconnected us to that purpose. I hope we can build further along that. Yeah, I think so many teachers who would be listening to this will probably be clapping um, hearing those words because I do think teachers often feel that they get a bit of a hard um uh, the the brunt of the um the challenges of society um you know during the covid lockdown we saw lots of articles about teachers being selfish about not wanting to go into work when nurses were going into work with covid-19 um but on the other side of it you also saw lots of articles and tweets from people saying you know i've taught my um, I've taught my child for one day and I now think that every teacher should have a one million pound raise um, because people start to appreciate just how challenging it is working and teaching children on a, on a day-to-day basis. So I think there'll be a lot of support for, those, for that philosophy and those thoughts. And I think what I really liked about this book is to me, it almost felt like um, it was kind of bringing back quite old practical wisdom. It almost felt, uh, I studied philosophy at university, and it almost felt a bit Aristotelian in places. Uh, it felt like wisdom that's been there for a long time, but it's been reframed at the perfect time, really, at a time where our society is kind of in chaos and, and there's lots of uncertainty in the future um, for our education system, for climate change, for our governments, with everything that's been going on. And it's really just reframing those old common values um, in a way in which we can apply to to the real world. So I think what I would love to chat to you a bit more about is some of the work that you've done in India where you've actually taken these principles and you've applied it to, to schools and teachers practically and, and what the kind of impact of that was. Yeah, um, no, thanks, Ian. And I think, um, yeah, it, it was really, as you say, these ideas have been around for for, for, for some time. It's just that, They've got pushed out of the last 30, 40 years by some of that management thinking and Aristotelian thinking, you know, Hindu philosophy, Buddhist philosophy. Most religions would probably bring this up. And this is not a religious book at all, but that these, these core values about basically that core insight that um, by to, to achieve something, the best way is not always to try and directly go after that outcome. Mm-hmm. Try and trust that if you do the right thing, the right outcomes will come naturally. So and would you... 
Yeah. Will you permit if I make a bit of a tennis analogy here? Because, yeah, please, please, please. Um, I know you're a big tennis fan from your book, mm. and I actually put a bet on Emma Raducanu to win mm. the US Open. Wow, you're a rich um, man, then. How do you want I got some good returns from that one. <laughs> well, well. Um, and I think that's a really interesting case study um, because obviously she played no tennis for a whole year while, before she was studying her A-levels. Her, she had a balanced approach. She She wanted to... Um, study her to complete her A-levels just in case she had an injury with tennis and it wasn't going to work out. Um, even at Wimbledon, before she went to the US Open, she was joking about how parents said she'd packed too much stuff in her in her suitcase because she wasn't going to be there for very long. Um, and she had a bit of a, um, a panic attack in Wimbledon, more of the, the changes, and a lot of people had written her off. But that raw talent was so strong. And when she went to the US Open, she, she shocked everyone apart from maybe myself because i've got such a growth mindset with these things but she just shocked everyone um with how focused and how determined she was and isn't that just a great example of someone just not training 100 to complete that goal but actually having that broader um that broader skill set and still achieving great success yeah no no and i just I was reading the paper today that she um someone asked her i think what are you going to do with the 1.8 million pound price money and she said i'm going to leave it to my parents to sort out, which was, again, a very, very apt way of describing that. And what I loved about her was just the way that, uh, about her behavior on the court was how she really just was, she was so radiant about playing tennis and mm. that love of the game was core. And I looked to the world of professional tennis for the book, as you mentioned, and I'm also a, a big fan. Um, it's become such a brutally competitive sport. And there's that risk so many players, I think, would have said, I mean, to build on what you said, had that, how can I take a year out? It's too crazy. Um, you know, what What possible, that's one year my competitors could, could be out there and improving their, sharpening the backhand on the tour or getting you know, more ATP points or WTA points and so on. She took that balanced approach. She reminds me actually of, of, of another person, like Roger Federer, who I think is also in that category. He played many sports till the age of 15. He didn't just choose tennis. He's a very broad-based character, traveled a lot around the world, very articulate all these things came out. But if you look at Federer now, he's almost, what, 40? He's 40 now, and he's still playing. Okay, he had an injury now, but he loves the game and loves the sport, loves the touring, loves meeting people, loves being on stadiums. And um, I think if, we're, if, we, if we love what we do and are deeply engaged in it, more and more of the research, I share some of this in the book, means that we all will most likely be successful in that thing right now. But the world is also an unpredictable place. It might be, as you said, you get the knee injury or your your back goes or just something else happens when you don't grow as much as your other players. So many things can happen in the world of competitive sport or the world of life. But what I'm what I'm finding more and more is that if you engage like that, you develop all the transferable skills. That means if she wants to go into another job, another profession, she's done it. She's clearly got that ability to um, engage people, to inspire to communicate, she's a great communicator. She um, is able to bring a lot of energy into what she does. I'm sure whatever she does next, the, all those things will be incredibly powerful assets. So taking that long-term perspective, as you said, you know, it's not a race. It's not, sorry, a sprint. It's a, it is a marathon. And, and these principles of intrinsic motivation that keep us focused on the love of what we're doing, I think can really help us through these choppy times. Yeah, and I love that focus as well on what you mentioned there about those transferable skills. And um, I think sometimes we can get stuck in our subject silos in education and think, right, we need to get this person to 
to um to get their a level in maths or this person to get their a level in english and you can forget sometimes that they're you know a human being and they have all these wider interests and uh, you know sometimes success in this subject might be to the detriment of success somewhere else um and i i loved the story that you had in your book about this talent nurturer that you had when you were in school that actually helped you to get to cambridge uh, if, if that's right yeah again it just shows what this can do because he i was um I, I really enjoyed english i think i had a little bit of a gift for it and he was incredibly inspiring i think an incredible teacher he was at, at brentwood school where i did my a, a, a part of my uh, life when i came back from saudi arabia i was just i was in the school for two years but i think just that that belief in me was something that it almost inspired a confidence in me i didn't feel i believe i had i don't think anyone else believed it and it radiated. So that was one subject. I'd just come back from Saudi Arabia. It was a real shock in everything from weather to food to academic system. But that that sort of encouragement, that nurturing, to use those words, as you said, was really sort of, um, it really spilled over to everything in my, my life more broadly. And that's what we're learning about nurturers, that they take people to places they wouldn't have got to otherwise. They keep uh, the person they're nurturing really deeply engaged and in love of what they're doing. They help them see new patterns and connections they didn't see before, and they're generous. So they often pass them on to another nurturer. And the really interesting twist in that, that story was that I left that school and went to a different one for my levels. I chose a different subject at Cambridge, which studied economics, not English. Mm-hmm. But my teacher, you know, Paul Henderson, still stayed connected with me and still you know, kept encouraging and nurturing. So that generosity as a, of a nurturer is really important. And I think teaching it at its best is about nurturing people. And just a, an example I gave in the book that brings to life that I was talking to the, uh, the head of one of the Brazilian's, Brazil's largest foundations in education. Uh, Brazil had had a very, very severe COVID outbreak. As we know, many kids have not been able to go to physical school for a long time. And they had a, the government had a very good system of TV teaching, which basically most most right. uh, most classes uh, don't have smartphones, but many or uh, relatively a lot of them don't have them. But um TV penetration was very, very high across the country. And so on TV and national TV, they organized this program where some of the best teachers in the country would, would deliver content. Mm-hmm. And there was no question, I'm sure the delivery, the content was better than many kids would have got in their local communities and so on, schools, but it didn't really work. And I asked the head of that foundation why, and she said, look, they didn't think it was their teachers. Mm. Yeah, the content was great, but there was no relationship between the teacher and the child. And you know, any of us who've been on a MOOC course, I don't know, you know there's, there's, there's massive online uh, courses, how, how easy is it to drop out? I've dropped out of many of them. There isn't someone there who's nurturing me, who's kind of going on the path with me, who cares about me, and basically who's motivating me. So I think, yeah, it's very easy for a teacher to get nowadays to get bamboozled by all the other sort of stuff we're thrown at, you know, the curriculum, the the content, the grades, all these kind of compliance requirements as well increasingly. But I think if you just remember that our core job is to nurture young people and take them to places they wouldn't have got to otherwise. Yeah. And obviously there is a bit of that sausage machine kind of um, syndrome with the education system at the moment with Ofsted. And, but there's also that kind of mentality for students as well with GCSEs and A-levels. So if, if the role of the teacher is to nurture these students and to be intrinsically motivated. How do teachers help their students to be more intrinsically motivated around their subjects? I think you know, there's a really interesting um, trend here that I think we can really um, use to take take um, advantage of that of it, and that is that 
the world of work is changing rapidly. It's already changed, I think, in some ways. And let me use teaching as, a, as an example, in fact, because you know, teaching itself is, is, of course, a very important job. Many people around the world have spent a lot of money trying to boil teaching down into some uh, manualized processes. And the best example, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who have a lot of admiration for, for so many things, they, they valiantly tried to do this. They spent $250 million, and I talk about this in the book, trying to do this in the US with US public school teachers. And it, it just didn't work. And, and to their huge credit, they admitted that. But basically, we know that teaching is a real-time profession. It's what I call in the book a, a wicked profession, not in a Wizard of Oz way, but in the sense that it's it's one where there's no easy technical solution. You know, you've got you know a child comes in front of you, and you've got millions of possible permutations. The community um, they come from, the challenge they're facing, the the content piece they're trying to uh, you know to, to understand. Um, there's so many things, and you've got to do that in real time. You, there's no you can't go into Google and look at something and come back later, you've got to respond immediately. And you've got different kids, all very different needs. How can you manualize that? It's it's impossible. What we've got to do is trust teachers to be great individuals and great professionals, invest in their motivation and nurturing. Um, And so that's an example. Teaching is one example, but most jobs in the world are becoming more wicked. The the stuff that's becoming kind of more... um, templatized, standardized, you know, um, uh, you know, factory-like, if you like, is becoming automated, already has become automated. What's going to be left in work is the human things, the things where there's no easy answer. And in a way, the skills that young people need to master for that new world of work, there's no point you know, in, in them being in a Victorian school system, coming out at 18 and suddenly having to confront this. Let's deal with it now while they're in school. Let's role model that and develop those skills. So I think if we tell that story differently to children and also to their parents very critically, there'll be a lot of support. I think parents are very confused. They're being told one thing by the government, one thing by, but they themselves work. They can see all this stuff in front of them. I think they'll be very sympathetic and very you know, very uh, open to coming on board. Yes. And uh, I mean, you mentioned earlier about being the son of immigrant parents. I'm also the son of immigrant parents and my mum's still deeply ashamed that I'm not a doctor or a lawyer. But I think the the, the thing which, which I really picked up on within the book is what you mentioned there about the Victorian teaching system. Um, things have changed a lot in the last hundred years. And you mentioned in the book a little bit about Maslow's hierarchy of needs over, over different generations and how perhaps before World War II, you know, everyone was thinking about survival and so on and so forth. And, you know, we needed, you need to make enough money to buy food. You needed to, to make enough money to have shelter and so on and so forth. The problems nowadays are, are different. And, you know, things like food and shelter, most people will have in general in a developed country like the UK. Um, but that just means that we have more focus and more to be dissatisfied with on higher levels of, of the pyramid, and we almost take for granted these hygiene factors, as you talk about in the book, lower down. So it's almost ironic because, in a way, we've kind of conquered some of the problems for, for many people uh, on the, that first rung of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yet, uh, our mindset, rather than becoming more abundant as a result of moving out of those kind of challenging areas, has almost become more command and control and more uh, kind of managed 
um, within the education system in lots of other areas as well, which is why I mentioned about this book coming at such a good time. So how do you think we can we can make people take that leap of faith to move out of that mindset of thinking, you know, I have to do X and Y in order to achieve Z to thinking I just need to do Z because I love it and everything else will take care of itself. Yeah, it was beautifully put in it. I really loved that your point about that idea of abundance. I think, let me build on that if it's okay to, to answer that. You know, I think our, our thinking before, to take that Maslow example, it was it was a mindset of, of scarcity, right? Everything was scarce. We don't have enough food in the world, enough jobs. The challenge, I mean, the, the data now is very, very clear around the world and labor economists approve this. I share some of that in the book. You know, there is no fixed amount of jobs out there. Jobs are not fixed. You know, it's not like there is a certain number of jobs that we've all got to compete on. Similarly, education, it's nonsense to believe that only a certain number of people each year can benefit from education. There are only so many Oxbridge places or top school places or whatever. We know that actually, by, by contrast, the more people who are educated, the, the better educated I will be and the wealthier I be. The, the better, you know, your schooling is, the, the better off I'll be. And vice versa. And actually, uh, an economist won a, a Nobel Prize in economics for showing exactly this. Right? So, you know, this is rigorously proven in so many places. It's just that our mental models have been slow to respond. And I hope the book can help practically to help people reset their, their mental models towards that. What I think is true, and I, I, I do want to pick up on this, because what has happened in this world of abundance, though, is the, um, the gaps between, in the book, I talk about the winners and the all, Mm. Uh, has grown and that has been a real problem that most people like myself who are big believers in capitalism and democracy and liberal values and so didn't anticipate 20 30 years ago so just take that tennis example if i if i can you know roger federer can can take 300 million dollars from a sponsorship deal from with uniqlo uh, emma's going to take quite a bit of money in the coming coming weeks ahead but if you're numbered 120 on the tour if you haven't got to that level it's really hard to make ends meet I took my sister-in-law to Wimbledon and she could barely see the difference between a top 10 player and the 120. They play almost identically in terms of the quality of the game. And yet the outcome, the, the financial disparities are so different. And so I think what we need to do is um, provide more, more safety in two ways. I, I talk about both areas in the book. One is I think emotional safety. Mm-hmm. As you said, you know, I think many immigrant parents and parents generally I talk to there's a very conditional approach to parenting, which is that, yeah, we'll love you if you become a doctor or a lawyer or whatever. Uh, and I don't think it's, it's all from a good place. They want the best for their children. I want to, want to stress that. But that idea that look, we'll love you really, to be the best version of yourself you can be. We'll accept you for whoever you want to be. Um, and, and our job as, as, a, as a parent is to provide that nurturing environment where you, you discover yourself and find that out for yourself. And that's success. If you found those answers for yourself, that's a great uh, childhood and it's a great parenthood as well. So that, and, and similarly, I think in the world of, you know, um, our romantic partners or spouses or girlfriends or boyfriends, increasingly the world around us is very choppy. These 18 months have shown that. We don't need our partner to be a life coach, a financial whiz. Um, you know, we ask too much of our partner, but if we just focus on, do they, do, will they continue their love and support irrespective of, of what you do? That would be a huge source of, um, of confidence and ability for us to take those risks. The second area, I do think we need to do more in terms of our, our social security systems. We had, of course, the furlough system. 
but um, systems that allow us to take risks a bit more easily. So if you're in between jobs, many of us are going to have to reinvent themselves. This is my probably fourth, fifth career in 25 years of working. Um, how do you make sure that there's enough training provision so it's easy to learn new skills? You've got a little bit of financial buffer to help you transition. These kinds of things we need to engineer into our systems as well. That's so interesting. Um, and, you know, one of the things which stood out in your book was not just the, the philosophy of um, how you can foster intrinsic motivation in these different areas like relationships and education, but right at the end, there was a really pragmatic kind of approach for how you could put that into action. So you had four principles, essentially. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to end on a, on a really challenging question because I know you're, you're a smart guy. Um, so if I was to take these four principles, which were looking at the cost of inaction of, of not doing things intrinsically, um, the intrinsic opportunity, the, the ability to manage that extrinsic downside, and then finding time to take small steps towards that uh, intrinsic approach. Now, there's been a bit of a cabinet reshuffle, just a few days before we, we've recorded this, and Gavin Williamson is now no longer the education secretary. If you had been put in as the new education secretary and you had to take these four steps looking at the UK education system, what do you think you would what do you think you would you would say? Yeah, so I'll say it. I hope that Mr. Zadawi is out there listening somewhere in one of these podcasts uh, you had. But um, look, I think I think first of all, I'd look at this this idea of the cost of inaction. Mm. We are, you know, the, the government, our own vision, and I talk about politicians in the book and how we need to get that dialogue better between them and our citizens, that trust to be rebuilt. It's really low right now in many countries, including the UK. But we want to create a, a, a 21st century Britain, a global Britain, all this kind of, um, you know, this kind of language from our politicians, which yeah. is all, you know, very, very good, very aspirational. Let's build an education system to serve that. Mm. Right now, that cost of inaction, we've got a, a world and an education system that are diverging dramatically. We've got a, a world of jobs and and, um, and citizenship, which it really requires a completely different set of skills that are really around engagement, motivation, flow, um, creativity, learning new things, all of these things. And we've got an education system that is going exactly the opposite direction, which is taking a micromanagement approach, which is based on fear and compliance, which is punishing people for taking risks. That's both teachers and children. It's compliance driven. It causes huge fear in our, um, you know, from an offset inspection all the way to a league table result. These, these are so diverging so far apart. What is going to happen if we're not careful is that education is going to be an irre irrelevance. It's almost like in, I mean, the countries like India, this is the case where you just have to get through these, you know, 12 or 13 years. There's almost no sense that this is going to be useful for you. We spend billions of pounds a year in the UK, as we should, on, on, high quality uh, public education. We ask our young people to spend a lot of their lives and some of the most formative years of their lives in the system mm -hmm. we need to change. And so I think putting that cost of inaction down and I think listening, talking to parents, but what I would also do if I was Mr. Zadawi is also talk to employers and remember what the world of work is now like. It's not the Victorian world. It's the exact opposite. Let's mm -hmm. really have that dialogue and listen. And I think if we can write that down on a piece of paper and say, this is why the current system is costing so much. I think it would put everything into perspective and would create a bit of the first momentum towards change. That's the first part, the cost of an action. Mm -hmm. Second thing is, is this idea of seeing that intrinsic opportunity 
what I, what I mean by that is that, you know, where is there latent energy to, to go in this direction? Where is there, are there champions? Is there a policy? And I think what they will find actually, honestly, is parents around this country and, and around the world who would leap at this because mm-hmm. um, we know how irrelevant our school system is becoming. And we know the anxiety levels that this is imposing on our kids. Uh, you know, the British kids are the, the, sorry, teenagers are the most anxious in the whole of Europe. We've got soaring levels of anxiety, depression, even suicide. And we're just not equipping our young people for that new world. So I think if they can bring parents on board, who of course are voters, and, and have a genuine dialogue with what they, what they need and explain why this is an important opportunity, I think most parents would really be happy to co-create this with the new education secretary. Mm-hmm. The third principle about managing the, the downside or the risk of it so I talked in the book about Singapore, which has had some challenges. I want to be honest here. They've yeah. tried some very progressive reforms, but they, they got stuck. They've got a system for all children at, at the age of 10 and 11 where kids are basically sorted into schools. Mm-hmm. And parents just couldn't get around the mental models of, if you take away that system, how do you know who the great kids are? That was the problem, the mental, problem, mental model problem that many Singaporean citizens were facing and the government, it's a very good government, I should stress, but it caved in and it said, sorry, we can't now get rid of that system. I think it should have had the courage to do so because that system perpetuated all the problems that um, stopped us moving to that better direction. And it's a really tricky thing, isn't it? How do you define what a great kid is? I mean, you go somewhere like Singapore. I've been to Singapore before for a conference and I had an Uber driver who was probably one of the most educated Uber drivers I've ever spoken to in my life I was speaking to him about philosophers and um, uh, and he was in, he was incredibly well educated but working as an uber driver because there are too many super educated people in Singapore to do all of this the jobs which require those skills uh, and you look conversely in somewhere like the UK you know you could go into something like being a bricklayer and the average salary for a bricklayer now is £45,000 a year. Some people are earning over ninety grand a year working as a bricklayer because there's a national shortage of them because everyone is, because so many people have gone to university to study these higher order, higher order skills. And all of these different skills are really important within society. You know, you need bricklayers, you need scientists, you need um, philosophers, uh, even though sometimes you don't feel like you need them, you do need them. Um, so... You know, it's really difficult to to define what what that word great means when you put it with with a child, and I I know that society has almost created that yeah that, um, that that metric to say look you're only you're worth this much if you get this grade or if you go to this school. Yeah, exactly, and I think that's a really nice way of putting it. So, what I what I, what I studied you know in the book, what we really deeply motivated people, what makes them motivated. It's often that sense of it's it's not this folly or passion stuff, which I think has become an un, 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 uh, unhelpful narrative because that's, that can become very indulgent, right? We can't all be professional tennis players. I would love to be on the tour playing. I'm not so good enough, fit, fit enough, right? But so that's that's not a very helpful way of thinking. But the people I, I do find have really um, found motivation in life are the ones who've uh, fallen in love with a problem. Mm-hmm. And it's a problem where it's so important. It's that sense of purpose, that sense of helping and serving others that they almost dissolve into the problem. The problem becomes bigger than them. And they don't worry about this stuff. And if, if that problem might make them a bricklayer, great. They love it because they know it's an important contribution to society. And 
they make a very important contribution to society, I would argue. So do philosophers, right? So do, so do teachers. So there's no right answer. What happens is we create a society where we, we look at success as being um, going up a sort of totem, a, a sort of a, a, a rung where everyone wants the same thing. And you know, I went back to Charles Darwin for the book to look at what he was saying. We talk about survival of the fittest. Our model is one where we're all competing for these small number of places, at these top universities or whatever the, the thing is. In fact, Darwin wasn't talking about um, survival of the fittest in that way. He didn't mean be stronger, faster, fitter. He meant be diverse. He was actually talking about new genetic traits that would actually improve the, the likelihood of the, the human race surviving. Now, he basically, I think, was an advocate for diversity centuries before it became a, a big thing in itself, right? So the idea of not following an external set of signals, but following your inner compass, mm-hmm. figuring out what really you're passionate about in terms of a problem you want to make a deep contribution to. And I think you'll find out whether you're the bricklayer or the philosopher. And you, you, as you said, you'll work out fine. You might you know, be a bricklayer, you'll, you'll be a very good one. You'll have a great salary. Mm-hmm. You might be a teacher and you make a big contribution there. Be a philosopher and have yeah. deep thoughts about being unemployed. Exactly, exactly. Well, <laughs> well actually, many philosophers, you know, you've seen, but there's been a whole boom in what they can do. So a lot of things that are happening now, I think, are about just believing that you'll, you'll um, again, really be immersed and deep into something. And it's the confidence that if you do that, it, it almost certainly will work out. If, you, if you're good at what you do, you will be able to create a niche for yourself. But even if you don't, you, you'll have learned so many transferable skills. You'll figure out, where to go next, and your 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 sense of the problem will evolve, and your motivation will evolve along that as well. That's such a motivate motivating message, isn't it? I think that's the the fear of inaction that often stops people from from taking those those big leaps in life. There's actually a, an entrepreneur that I saw on LinkedIn recently. I can't remember who it was, but he had a great quote, and he was talking about how you know you you take out a thirty five thousand pound loan to pay for your university and everyone will applaud you you take out a 200 grand mortgage and everyone will applaud you for getting your new house you take out a car loan to buy a new car and everyone will congratulate you on the new car but you you spend five grand on starting your own business and suddenly you get lots of people saying well how's it going to work this isn't going to work you know that how are you going to how are you going to make money how are you going to survive and all the negativity comes out but actually just taking that that leap and trusting yourself with with what you want to do and i'm not saying that everyone needs to start their own business obviously um you can find that that um that happiness uh or, or that purpose within anything that you're doing but, but having that trust in yourself i think is one of the core uh tenets of this this book and i think it's something that's that's deeply needed at this time thanks Aaron. just to close off on that idea that you know, some of the data in the UK is showing that half of us will be self-employed in 20 years. That's some of the projections. Mm-hmm. So what, what you know, we, we have companies or organizations because it was very costly to transact, right? So if you wanted a service to go out to the marketplace and find someone, it was very difficult. Now, you know, we've got, you know, LinkedIn, you know, thousands of connections we can always reach out to for specialist advice. I advise all kinds of, uh, of organizations all over the world on stuff, sometimes virtually, sometimes in person. It, it's a much more fluid way of working. And um, that means that actually those entrepreneurial skills may not be all entrepreneurs in the way you described it, that Richard Branson style, but yeah. many of us will need to learn to figure out what's our unique motivation, passion, and problem we want to try and contribute to. How can we build um, 
of something of value that can help and serve other people around that? How do we go out and meet people and then get them to pay for what we do? That's going to be a big reality for all of us. So I do think that that, that entrepreneurial mindset is going to be a really important part of uh, success in the world going forward. And our school systems should should not impede that. They should help nurture it at the core. Sure. And I mean, that's certainly in line with lots of the thinking of Sir Ken Robinson and, and, and other researchers um, around the changes that, that are to come. The challenge really is for our educators is how they can how they can instill that mindset and that capability within young people today, within the conflicts and the constricts, sorry, of our current accountability system. Um, Sharath, I could speak to you for weeks. Really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you so much for your time. And I really hope that we can catch up again at some point in the future, if that's okay with you. Of course, it's such a pleasure. I really love the conversation. And just say to, to your listeners, you know, please stay in touch. I'd love to hear other efforts, but I'm also trying to actively engage with those who are trying to change things in education. Uh, you mentioned the book very kindly, which is called Intrinsic. Uh, get that on um, Amazon all the way to your uh, local bookseller. But also, you know, I, I'm on Twitter, Sharath Jeevan underscore, on LinkedIn. If you search for me, please stay in touch to continue the conversation. Like what we're trying to build, the book is, uh, I'm very proud of it, but it's, it's really the starting part of a conversation. We want change makers across the country in education to think about these ideas, make it practical for them, for their reality, and start to make those small steps that take us in that big overall direction. So really genuine, please reach out and let me know how it's going. Tell me how you're using ideas from the book and I'll try and help and support in whatever way I can through that process. Well, you heard it here first. Get in touch with Sharath. Sharath, thank you so much for your time and have a lovely weekend. You too, Thanks again. All the best. Bye.